0: You read list. I'm Bailey and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 140 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Moo. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist.
1: Oh, I wish I could get Jax to meow right
0: now for me. I thought Andrew mooed, not yep. meowed. Did he
2: moo? Wait, did he moo? Do I have to outmoo him? I certainly mooed. You can try out mooing me, but good luck. <laughs> 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 Move.
3: Andrew's so sympathetic. To the victims of his uh, of his book this week. Ooh, yeah. Or, or are the victims the American people? I don't know. We don't know yet. No spoilers.
0: No spoilers on the, the victims
2: are the workers that are wage slaves.
0: So, guys, does anybody have any shame to report?
2: No shame. I have one of those sort of. I'm not going to call it shame, but I am going to be adding a book to my list. Ooh, tell us more. Uh, So Jillian's birthday was last Friday. Happy birthday, Jillian. If you didn't celebrate her, you are a monster. Happy birthday.
0: (laughs) Uh,
2: But for her birthday, I got her a book, and I want to put that book on my list. The book is We Play Ourselves by Jen Silverman, who I know primarily as a playwright who was in the writers group I'm currently a part of, but before my time, so I never actually met. But I'm very excited to hear good things about this book, and I'm looking forward to throwing it on my list, but refuse to call it shame.
3: Fair enough.
0: Okay. Okay.
3: Was the working title for that one? Congratulations! You played yourself.
0: (laughs) I thought it was like in a play, you play yourself.
2: I think that
3: no, it's certainly certainly the intention. I just wanted to say that thing that I said.
2: Wait, is a play the thing? I don't. Yeah, we're going to catch the conscience of the king, but we'll we'll, we'll do that later. Just some Hamilton, not Hamilton. (laughs) (laughs) Just some Hamlet Hamlet jokes for you there.
3: (laughs) Mystery resolution time. Ooh. I had a chance, committed to Pejos, who've been with us for at least one episode, <laughs> I had a chance to follow up on uh, the mystery of the of the box on my street. You know, the question was, is it a little free library? Is it a bat house? Is it a bird house? And I'm here to tell you all, it is a poorly constructed little free
2: library. Oh! Yeah. For bats. <laughs> Exclusively for bats. Tiny little books. It's no. a little free library where you put the books in on the top like a piggy bank? Is that what we're talking that's here? right
3: yeah. oh you can only deposit it and to get the books out you have to smash it
0: wait how does it work
3: so there is a way to get in it it has like a little bolt like like, like a little sliding bolt on like a camping bathroom i don't know <laughs> like, yeah no, like, i know mean. yeah um yeah there's just no window and so for like i didn't go close to it before so from a distance it just looks like a weird little house and you can open it but it's a, it's such a terrible no shade but very much shade to whoever made this little free <laughs> library i hope you don't hear this but it's the least inviting one ever it has no Glass, so you can't see. There's any books in it, and it has like it's basically locked, right? Mm-hmm. So that you have to like undo. I was felt very sketchy just opening this box, but then there was books inside, and I was like, okay. But there's not even a sign that says Little Free Library, so I don't know.
0: Maybe that's where the haunted books live.
1: Maybe. I don't.
3: Def- I definitely think for next episode,
1: Toby has to pull a book out at random that he can't see from the box, and he has to read it.
3: That is not my shelf. I do not take responsibility for that shelf. <laughs>
0: Did you get a book? Were
1: there any no, good books? There, no. Of course,
3: there's. I mean,
2: no shade to Little Free Libraries. <laughs> <laughs> but of course there is no good books.
0: Sometimes there's good books.
2: <laughs> How many copies of what is it? Learning the music within? We're, we're in there? Oh, at least 10.
3: Oh,
0: okay. okay I, good. I I get a fair amount of books from little free libraries. I will share that. I just <laughs> Kind of recently got the book Specials from a Little Free Library. That's the third in the Uglies trilogy.
3: This happens a lot, doesn't it? It's like, you know, number two, number five in a series.
0: Yeah. So what's happened with this series is I feel like I just can't escape it. When I I was teaching, there were copies of it all around. I think it was like a book club book or something. And my kids were reading it. So I was like, I'll read it, I guess. I read Uglies. Eh. It was whatever.
3: <laughs> Wait a minute. Expand on this. Ugly specials. What is this? Oh,
0: it's like a futuristic, you know, it's like a divergent
3: type book. Mm-hmm. Um, Pretend someone didn't know what divergent type okay. book meant. Uh, okay. where YA uh, take us back on what a
2: book is just for <laughs> a
0: second. YA future where um everybody is born quote ugly and then when they turn 16 they get a surgery to become quote pretty but then that dumbs them down and so this starts with an ugly who escapes and finds people living outside the system. Ah. Okay. So it's Sounds like cool. So yeah, and you know what? It's fine. The first one was fine, and so I was like, "eh, I don't think I'll continue with that series." Cut to like two years later, I'm at like one of those um,
3: little free Libraries. Not a little free
0: library, like a like a church book sale where the okay. books are like fifty cents.
3: Yeah, the the genetic cousin of the little free library. Exactly.
0: What's there? Pretties. Book number two. Okay. I'm like okay, fine, I'll get it. <laughs> Cut to what a few months ago so like 10 years later special shows up in the little free library down the road i'm like fine here's the thing it's terrible i gave it one star i hate it i don't know why why do i do this i don't
3: know
2: why either one star is pretty remarkable especially from you bailey yeah
3: it's pretty bad and I don't know if I've ever heard you rate another book, One Star.
2: One Star is
0: pretty rare for me. Pretty stinky. Um. So someday I will come across extras and I will have to read that one as well.
2: Yeah, you're cursed. Well, but you don't have to, barely.
0: No, but I do. Oh, I think it, she's cursed. I mean, Just watch
2: the TV show Extras and say you read the book. <laughs> Are you going to read the fifth one, Fuglies? <laughs>
0: a good one, Dylan. There's one more thing that we have to discuss, and that is the man we all aspire to be. Dylan, can you fill us in about our friend?
1: You mean the Ballad of Aaron Yang?
0: Aaron Yang. Aaron Yang, who is all of us.
1: So Mm -hmm. we heard about this story through NPR, because of course, we listen to NPR, let's all be honest here. That was not a surprise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's an article called Aaron Yang, Voracious Reader or a Giant Pain to Librarians.
2: Oh, sounds interesting. Oh and, no! And apparently, I, I'm already guessing that Bailey agrees with Aaron Yang.
3: <laughs> what he does, he is a. T- it's never, it's never great
2: to have a story about
3: you and have someone start with the phrase "What this person does." <laughs> it's even worse when you have to mention his age. That he's a 20 year old living in Southern California sounds fine but
1: ever since he was 14 he uh signed up for his summer reading
0: program at a local library at a local How library
1: bailey what's a summer oh, reading no. program
0: like well, you would you would have to read like 20 books and then in the end you get like a free pencil or a free eraser if you do it or pizza or pizza it's for children
1: and i guess he's been chasing that high ever since because he's signed up for like hundreds of other libraries summer reading programs
0: and librarians either love him or hate the fact that this kid he, he emails them and says okay so i've finished the reading challenge can you please send me my prize this is my address
1: <laughs> and like libraries in wisconsin and everything have to send him like pencils and erasers first of all they don't <laughs> these are some librarians.
3: so what no one has called him and been like mr yang no the librarians call it getting yanged. <laughs> when they get the email, it's is, is getting that re- Is that really part of the article? Yeah,
0: it's real. <laughs> so I mean most of the librarians think it's like nice and to promote literacy, but some of them are like, is get your own pencils. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I'm assuming like the Wisconsin State Library, that's it, I'm sure that's it, <laughs> only has a limited amount of pencils to give away. What
0: I want to know is does he, he probably doesn't, there's no way he does d- do an individual challenge for each library.
3: He's that probably too. just doing
0: the same challenge for all the libraries. That's not fair.
3: Yeah, that's against fair. the rules. What if he reads all
1: the books, though? Then you'd have to respect his game.
3: Again and again, if he, if he if for each individual challenge, like he had to read like thirty books for each challenge, and mm-hmm. he read like 2- three thousand <laughs> books. I mean, I, yeah. you know what? I would respect the Yang game. That would, that, yeah, I give the man his pencil, but I doubt he does that. He's twenty years old. He's got bills to pay.
1: <laughs> Do you think they have a follow question? Like, oh, so what uh, middle school are you in? Uh, uh, uh.
0: uh Colgate College. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So Bailey, you'll be doing that this summer, huh?
0: Um. <laughs> yeah, I've already started making inquiries.
3: Never have to buy a pencil again.
1: <laughs> I kind of want to find his email and see if he'll be a guest on the
0: podcast. <laughs> okay, so. I would love him to be a guest <laughs> on the podcast. Yes.
3: So if you're listening, Mister Yang, we disapprove of you, and also come talk to us on our podcast.
1: <laughs> we will give you so many pencils and erasers. Yeah, we have some pencils. <laughs> Probably can get him to do
3: anything if you do that. <laughs> So, Andrew, Noted Carnivore, how... <laughs> oh, wait, can I team up? Sure, go ahead. Hey, what's Upton, Andrew? <laughs>
2: uh, not much.
3: Dylan, I'm going I'm to keep... I'm sorry, Andrew, I have to interrupt you. I'm editing this one, and I'm going to keep my, like, good lead-in, and the fact that Dylan stopped me for that. I'm going to keep all of it.
1: <laughs> I just realized I had to squeeze that in somewhere.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, I read The Jungle by <laughs> Upton <in> Sinclair. <laughs> I heard that this is just a thrill ride a minute, Andrew.
2: It's a thrill ride a minute. It's uplifting. You don't think it's gross ever. Mm -mm. I definitely knew it was a novel.
0: I did not know it was a novel.
2: No, no, I, I really didn't. We'll talk about it in a minute. Um... So, yeah, I read The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, a book you may have heard about in your AP history courses or just in general going about. It's the book where gross things happen in a meatpacking plant. And that's all I knew about it. I thought it was a work of like muckraking journalism, which is something I knew that Upton Sinclair was involved in. I think that's what the book came out of, but I didn't um, do any research on it, Toby. So I'm not going to step on any of your facts. But lo and behold, I start reading this book and it's a novel. So, surprise. Surprise.
0: I feel like in several AP U.S. history's essays, I cited the jungle as muckraking journalism. So who knew?
2: Yeah. Well, for our next DBQ, we'll know that it's a novel. Oh, DBQ. Um, I loved DBQs. I was really good at them. What is a DBQ?
0: A document-based question.
2: Oh, God. I wish you all could see the disgusting look
3: (laughs) on Bailey's face. (laughs) She recalled her favorite aspect of school.
2: (laughs) How dare you? Not to not to toot my own horn, but I wasn't necessarily the best student in the class, but I was really good at DBQs to the point where my teacher was kind of surprised because she was like, you shouldn't be as good at these as you are. You're not the smartest one here. Um, anyway, here's sort of a, a little teaser to give you get you set in the world of the jungle. A searing protest novel that took aim at predatory labor practices, the jungle follows Lithuanian immigrant Jorgis Rudkus as he tries to make a life for his family in America. While the specific disgusting instances of this book have been consigned to the history. The core complaints reverberate today, which frankly only makes the book more depressing. Mm, Because guess what? A lot of the things that I think Upton Sinclair thought he was getting rid of forever by releasing this book are still happening. But yeah, so... To give you a little more context, it, the novel is a classic immigrant story of Jurgis and his family who come over from Lithuania. He comes over with his bride-to-be Ona and her sisters and a bunch of children. So there's this big old contingent of Lithuanian immigrants coming to Chicago. And what follows is everything bad that could happen to them happens to them. And it doesn't just happen to them. It is done to them by ill-wishing and ill-acting people trying to make money off of them and you know screw them over so it's a cheery ride Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is just some context for this book this isn't i mean it's the book's been around since the early 1900s i'm not worried about spoilers necessarily so uh, but i'm not going to say which character this happens to but a minor character just gets eaten by rats um out Hmm. of nowhere you hadn't thought about this character in about 120 pages there's (laughs) just a side like paragraph where he gets eaten by rats so that's what we're dealing
3: with. Can you imagine there's like an editor's note that was like, so what happens to character X? And Upton's like, fine. You wanna know what happens
2: to character X? He's rat food. Um, But yeah, all of this is sort of painting a pretty bleak version of the book, but I actually have a lot of uh, elves for it. Nice One, which is that it, is well written and it's good at playing with expectations. I find that even though it is a book from over a hundred years ago, it read pretty quick and pretty breezily uh, with one notable exception, which we'll get into later. To give you a sense of sort of Sinclair at his prosiest, I'll read a quote from early on. In cheerier times, at Yorgos and Ona's wedding, this is Sinclair describing a violin player getting the the crowd excited. Now he is in his glory, dominating the scene. Some of the people are eating, some are laughing and talking, but you will make a great mistake if you think there is one of them who does not hear him. His notes are never true and his fiddle buzzes on the low ones and squeaks and scratches on the highs, but these things they heed no more than they heed the dirt and noise and squalor around them. It is out of this material that they have to build their lives, with it they have to utter their souls and this is their utterance merry and boisterous or mournful and wailing or passionate and rebellious the music is their music music of home it stretches out its arms to them they have only to give themselves up chicago and its saloons and its slums fade away there are green meadows and sunlit rivers mighty forests and snow-clad hills that's lovely yeah yeah And that's like on page five of the book. So you think you're getting into something a little different than what is coming next. Um, In the background, a rat watched the violin player with greedy eyes. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so it's he has a great command of language. It does not read super dry, which I was worried about once I realized it was like a journalistic book that was going to try to be a novel. I was a little nervous about that, but that was good. It feels well argued. And so it was kind of a fun thing and a unique experience to read this book, knowing that it made such a big splash and that it had such an impact. So it was sort of kind of fun to see the argument laid out that way. And it feels like a book that people should read, which, you know, isn't true of every classic, like I'm not going to sit here and say a lot of the classic books that we read on this podcast, I feel like you should still read. This one, I feel like is worth still reading, especially in the like context of where we are now, where people are taking a hard look about how they want labor practices to, to move forward and making sure that there's more fairness. So like it, it, I think it is good to remember where we came from, how far we have still to go. And it's an interesting time capsule in that way.
0: I think that's a really good point because there's classic books and then there's books that actually changed history. And I feel like this one, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Silent Spring, they actually affected history. So they're worth reading today, you know, just to see. So that's very cool. That's a really good point.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the few times I feel like the historical context of the book should, like, play into my rating. Mm-hmm. Like, I, it ends up happening to me a lot when I'm trying to rate classics that I end up, like, wanting to give it a higher star. But I did give this book a higher star rating because of its, like, <laughs> it actually had demonstrable effect on, you know, the Pure Food and Drug Act and whatnot. Yeah, fair. I'm... Introducing a new section here, which is, what's between an elven and an orc? Because I have two middle points. Human.
0: Hobbit. Middle Earth. A
2: halfling. A tiefling. This is a tiefling. One of those tree um, guys. d d people are screaming
3: into their phones right now.
2: Whatever. These are my middle ground things. It gets pretty gross, which mm. is sort of a pro because it's fascinating and you can then see why it gripped the imaginations of the people reading it and why it grips people's imagination now. But- Darn it, it wears on you after a while when you're just getting description after description about how slaughtering processes work and not even wears on you in like an effective way. If anything, you become sort of numb to it, which I think is not the point. Mm -hmm. And then similarly, it's bleak, which is a pro and is helpful to the storytelling. Like you want to see how far these people fall, but it's a con when it just starts to feel repetitive and like, you know, anytime something good happens, like in no joke two paragraphs something bad is going to happen that's going to completely undercut and leave these characters in a worse position (laughs) because it it follows sort of a predictable pattern in that way though i will say it does make the like few moments of particular maybe ironic injustice or moments of hope pop a little more because it's so repetitive but mostly it's it's quite repetitive and that'll bring us to to my orcs, and a big one is is the ending. I, again, I'm not trying to spoil it, spoil anything, but again, you've probably read this book or were forced to read sections of this book at some point for school. But the book, at some point, becomes more of a treatise on socialism, mm. and less a novel. I gonna say
3: um like that because of the research I've done. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Toby is well aware teasing,
3: teasing my research just a little bit. <laughs> he he likes socialism, maybe a little. <laughs>
2: but, yeah well here's the thing i was expecting it to be sort of sprinkled in it legit i'm just <laughs> gonna say it it legit becomes a like 40 page lecture lecture on socialism at the end <laughs> And Not literally, surprising. the character you've been following this whole time just is sitting in a lecture hall and listening to it.
1: Something anti Rand.
2: Yeah, at some point, it's like I've done all the, the crappy things I'm going to do to this guy. Let's just have him listen to a lecture on socialism Let's give him for the a big while.
3: Treat of a lecture on socialism.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so that's a that, that's a pretty major org for me. Uh, parts of the book don't age well, as you might imagine. Particularly, there's a section about uh, black scab workers coming in and just the language is abrasive to modern ears. I don't think it's particularly horrendous like <clears throat> Robinson Crusoe, <laughs> but it does, I mean, it doesn't feel good to read. And so, yeah, I I feel pretty positive about this book. I do want to throw one more quote in just to give you a hint of sort of how this bleakness comes in. And I think it'll be helpful if you're on the fence about whether or not you want to read this. This is just, we're about a third of the way through the book, and this is sort of the tone we're sitting in. So often this mood would come to Ona in the nighttime when something wakened her. She would lie, afraid of the beating of her own heart, fronting the blood-red eyes of the old primeval terror of life. Once she cried aloud and woke Jurgis, who was tired and cross. After that, she learned to weep silently. Their mood so seldom came together now. It was as if their hopes were buried in separate graves. Yikes. And that's pretty early in the book, and we get there. So just... <laughs> <laughs> come to it with that
0: seems like everything's going well for them
2: don't you love it when your friends get married and
3: you're like oh they're doing so well their hopes seems like seem like they're buried in separate graves <laughs>
1: oh yikes <laughs> i think the vows must have been interesting <laughs>
3: <laughs> may our hopes be buried together in the same grave
2: <laughs> <laughs> so all that said uh, i gave the book four stars nice um i think it's a good reference book to have like i don't know that i don't think I'm going to give it away. I enjoy having a copy of it. Again, like it's historical context does win out and makes up for some of the dragging. And I had a, Good time, and I'm glad I'm not a good. I didn't have a good time, but I'm glad I read it, and I I feel like I've I learned some cool stuff. So four stars for me.
0: All right, well, Toby, do you have any facts on Mister Upton Sinclair?
3: Oh, I have a lot of facts. All Um, right. So I realize it's been a while since we've done like a big historical figure for a while, and there's a it's kind of more fun to research them because their lives are so crazy. Yeah, Franz Kafka is such a modern guy. That's right. I forgot about Kafka. I do have some facts about Upton. Beall Sinclair Jr. Bial? Bial, Beall? Beall. B E A L L. Beall? Bait Beal Maybe Beall. Beall. <laughs> um, so he was born on September 20th, 1878, and he died November 25th, 1968. He was an American writer, political activist, and the 1934 Democratic Party nominee for Governor of California. I know. We saw Mank.
0: Wow, so he he was like 90.
3: <laughs>
2: mhm. Wait, yes. when he ran?
0: No, I mean when he died. Yes, he
2: lived a very long life. Yeah, it's weird that he overlapped with our parents.
3: That is weird.
2: They feel like very different parts of history. He wrote nearly
3: 100 books, some of them journalistic, some in in other genres. Um, He was extremely well-known and popular, and he won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1943. For this particular book, The Jungle, uh, it was an example, it's kind of cited as an example of muckraking journalism, but it is confusing because it isn't really journalism, as Andrew has noted, Um, but it did cause... the passage literally people said this is one of the main reasons why we're passing this it's called the 1906 pure food and drug drug act and the meat inspection act which aimed to eliminate some of the more disgusting things that he uh, described in this book he also did a couple other books uh, in this vein one of them was called the brass check which was an expose of american journalism which publicized the issue of yellow journalism at the time Time Magazine called him, quote, a man with every gift except humor and silence.
2: Quote, <laughs> Jeez. Um, yeah, there's he, not a lot of humor in this book, so that feels about right. Wow, how serious do I have to be for Time Magazine to say, lighten up?
3: <laughs> <laughs> He's also well-remembered for this line uh, that he spoke himself, quote, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it, close quote.
1: I mean, that's kind of funny. <laughs>
3: He was an outspoken socialist and ran unsuccessfully for congress as a nominee for the socialist party he was also the democratic party candidate for governor of california during the great depression he was born in baltimore maryland to upton bial sinclair senior and priscilla harden sinclair upton did not start school until he was 10 years old in 1888 the sinclair family moved to queens new york where his father sold shoes and he entered uh, the city college of new york five days before his 14th birthday he had to nerd. pay his way nerd yes uh, he had to pay his way and so strangely enough he it says here he wrote jokes dime novels and magazines articles and boys weekly and pulp magazines to pay for his tuition so he did write jokes yeah he wrote jokes for, like, years. Uh, he graduated from high school in June 1987 and cl- studied.
0: 1987?
3: At 1987. It took him a <laughs> long time. Wow. He graduated from high school in June 1897, and then he studied at Columbia University. Heard of it. He paid the one-time enrollment fee to be able to learn a variety of subjects, and he would sign up for a class and then drop it once he thought he had learned enough. Yes. Double nerd. Double nerd. <laughs> he again supported himself through college by writing boys' adventure stories and jokes. He also sold ideas to cartoonists. Using stenographers, it says, he wrote up to 8,000 words of Pulp Fiction per day.
0: That's crazy. Whoa. But at the same time, how much? How many uh, books of Pulp Fiction do you think I would have to write to pay off my student loan from Columbia?
2: I think, <laughs> yes, that's comparable. Like one really, really popular one? <laughs> I guess. Um, like one like Harry Potter level popular one? <laughs>
3: Fair A little bizarre side adventure in his life um, with the income he got from the jungle and a kind of other public funding he founded the utopian Helicon home Colony in Inglewood, New Jersey. It was it was a utopian society that excluded everyone who was not white and it also excluded Jewish people. Uh, he ran as a socialist candidate for Congress at during that time and Wait, hold up yeah wait <laughs> wait. wait so that he only
2: he only let in white people yeah he was he's terrible. It's a little bit of a different spin on that section of the book, which I thought was a little callous. Yeah. He <laughs> waited until after his college graduation to
1: slip in the fact, like, oh, yeah, by the way, he's a raging racist.
3: Yeah, this is his life. He didn't he didn't really come out with it until he was starting to be successful. Wait to hear what happened. Uh, the colony um, was meant as a place for, quote, authors, artists and musicians, editors and teachers and professional men who wanted to avoid the drudgeries of domestic life. So he basically set it up as a place where men could chill and women could raise the children in like a separate place and men could just do their work and hang out.
0: So a fraternity. Was yeah, it,
3: was it's, a, it's basically a giant frat house. Wait for it. The colony burned down under sub- suspicious circumstances within a year.
0: Oh, bummer. Sci utopia.
3: <laughs> Mad bummer. Wait, would this be
1: the first white boy summer? <laughs> the <Joanne>. first. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Apart from his political and social writings, uh, Sinclair also took interest in occult phenomena and experimented with telepathy. Oh God. He wrote a book called Mental Radio in 1930 that included accounts of his wife Mary's telepathic experiences and abilities. Tight. Tight, tight, tight. So in 1900, um, he went to go work on a novel in this like remote cabin, and he was introduced to his future first wife, Meta Fuller. Sinclair was opposed to sex outside of marriage and viewed marital relations as necessary only for procreation. He told his first wife, Meta that only the birth of a child gave marriage dignity and meaning. Despite his beliefs, Sinclair had an adulterous affair with Anna Noyes during his marriage to Meta. He wrote a novel about the affair called Love's Progress, and it was never published.
0: What? Why? His- Shocking.
3: <laughs> his wife later had an affair with John Armistead Collier, a theology student from Memphis. They had a son together named Ben. Good for her. In 1910, they moved to Arden, Delaware, and Sinclair was arrested for playing tennis on the Sabbath. <laughs> Been there. <laughs> everyone, everyone can relate to that. He
1: forgot that he was not in his uh, Jewish free colony anymore.
3: Mm -hmm. Then he invited a guy named Harry Kemp, the, quote, vagabond poet, to camp on uh, his land in Arden. Uh, And then his wife became enamored with Kemp and left him for him. Been there. (laughs) Elton Sinclair is buried next to his third wife. I'm skipping a whole middle wife because it's even crazier and we don't have time. He's buried next to his third wife, Mary Elizabeth Willis, in Rock Creek Cemetery in Washington, D.C. That I am truly only scraping the surface of bizarre things that happened in this man's life. He seems complicated, um, to say the least.
0: Which wife was the one that was tight with ghosts?
3: Last wife. Telepathic, apparently. Yeah. That's you can't cheat on your telepathic wife, can you?
0: Great. Well, thank you for those awesome facts. You're welcome. And Andrew, thank you for that great review. Moo moo, moo moo. Four stars.
3: Mm-hmm. Bailey. Yo. You read a book or what? <laughs> <laughs> we have to think of a better way
0: <laughs> End of podcast. I did. I wrote a book called Black Swan Green by David Mitchell. <laughs> check, check, check,
3: check,
2: check it
3: out.
0: Dylan, do you want to do yours that oh you- that
1: i've been seeing black Swan. i've been annoying her because every time i've seen her reading it in the house i've been going black swan green don't you mean like black black hole sun
0: but black swan green
3: wow i i don't think i would have got there <laughs> unless you, you think- interpreted it for me bailey you get stuck in your head
0: anyway so <laughs> this book quack away
3: the rain, rain.
0: <laughs> black swan green
3: all right all right it's good <laughs>
0: Uh, Black Swan Green is the name of the town that the book is set, which I didn't know going in. Yeah,
3: you wouldn't, because there's a dang swan on the cover. How would you know? I
0: didn't know that. Uh, So David Mitchell, we've uh, covered Cloud Atlas on the podcast before. I also have Bone Clocks on my list. So he is a favorite. He's an excellent modern writer. But he tends (laughs) to be one that I buy the book and don't read it. So Uh that's not great. So I'm glad to finally read this one. As I said in the last episode, I got this one specifically because it was recommended in my adolescence in literature class Mm -hmm. as a very strong YA book. And Toby said it wasn't a YA book, and I firmly disagree that it really? is. Yes. You think it's
2: a YA book? Okay. Yes. Interesting. And I would like to have you guys physically fight about it. Okay, I mean, I'm great. Down.
0: I mean, Toby is very strong.
3: <laughs>
2: it's gonna be it's gonna be good radio. You're gonna hear it.
0: <laughs> so um I don't know this for a fact because I specifically didn't look it up, so Toby will have to tell us. But my impression is this is sort of a meta fiction where it's really, it's a coming of age story, but it's kind of based on David Mitchell's real life. Yeah. Toby's nodding.
3: Um, not, it, not to spoil it, my research, but yeah.
0: Yeah. So it follows um, a boy named Jason Taylor who is 13 in the year 1982 in the center of England. He's growing up um, and he's dealing with, you know, stuff you deal with when you're 13 puberty. Um, his parents are fighting uh, Margaret Thatcher and the war in the Falklands, etc. You know, puberty. You know, puberty. Um, but he, You
2: haven't written enough pulp fiction to pay for your school, all that <laughs>
0: stuff. Exactly.
2: <laughs> (laughs) are watching you from the gutters.
0: (laughs) Um, But he does have specific, I guess, one specific issue, which is that he has a stammer. um, And he characterizes it, he calls it hangman. As we're inside his head, we hear him say, hangman blocked this word, which means he's not able to say it. Um, And that's an interesting uh, perspective, an interesting take. But in general, this really reminded me of um, Adrian Mole, the secret diary that I read Um, That one was fiction written by a woman. But this one feels it's the same time period, the same age of kid. Mm -hmm. And this is like a much better version, I think,
2: of the Adrian Mole book. Fair Mm
0: -hmm. enough. No shade on Sue Sue Townsend.
2: You're throwing shade everywhere, Bailey. And I just need you to know it is being picked up by these authors. (laughs) Black
0: Swan, shade. So one thing that I love about David Mitchell, and I know you're a huge fan, Toby. I think he just has beautiful writing, beautiful descriptions. Um, I marked one down for you, Toby. Oh, thank you. Not for Andrew. <clears throat>
2: I didn't want it anyway.
0: <laughs> in this part, Jason, has um, he's talking about the poetry that he's written. He's publishing poetry in Parish's magazine, but he publishes under a pseudonym. The woman who's reading his poem, this is what he is thinking. This is page 145. I felt giddy with importance that my words had captured the attention of this exotic woman. Fear, too. If you show someone something you've written, you give them a sharpened stake, lie down in your coffin, and say, when you're ready. Yep. Yep. So he he has a lot of just descriptions of that like that that just totally encapsulate a feeling which, uh, in a creative way. He also does a great job with dialogue and he does a lot of overlapping dialogue like at a, at a dinner table, there'll be several conversations going on at once, and there's a lot of subtext about what's being said and not said, especially in this family where the marriage is clearly falling apart, and the kid may or may not realize that. And he does something interesting with the writing, which is each section feels a little bit like a short story, and most of them end like at the climax, and you mm-hmm. don't find out what happens until a chapter or two down the line. Like Somebody falls through a greenhouse, and you're like, what happened? Mm-hmm. Cut to. And I thought that that was really interesting interesting like sometimes frustrating but ultimately um exciting nice so those are all my elves my only orcs um i did think it took a little bit to get into it and maybe it's because i just read adrian mole recently but it was kind of like oh yeah i get it coming of age yeah but as it got going i got more and more into it and i liked seeing sort of jason come into his own my biggest orc is
3: i think i might know what it is
0: I think you do. Yeah. Do you want to guess? Do you want me to say? Is, is, it, is
3: like, it
2: the big orc that's the villain for yeah, no it's reason? Yeah, the villain.
3: You know, <laughs> Clogknock. Uh, no, is it the weird magical realism thing? Of
0: course. Of course it is.
3: <laughs> that's a, He
0: can't stop himself. He can't stop himself.
3: Well, I don't mind it. Why don't you explain it?
0: Okay. So here's
3: Because I, I agree with you on this one.
0: Okay. So here's the thing with David Mitchell. He... Crafts this David Mitchell overse that mm-hmm. like all of his books are connected even though they're wildly different subject matters usually, um, and some of them are just out there like Cloud Atlas is pretty out there. My understanding is Bone Clocks is really out there. Slade House is like a horror book. Mm-hmm. Then there are the books I haven't read them all, but that are very slice of life like this coming of age book Black Swan Green or Utopia Avenue that just came out that's straight up a story about a band
3: well there's some mitraverse stuff no in I, that's too. what i'm saying yeah, yeah.
0: so all of it is normal and then there's just one chapter in each <laughs> one where he's like i almost forgot <laughs> i like weird <laughs> stuff too yeah so you know because they have this idea of these bone clocks people that can like bend time and magical realism, of that kind of yeah. idea so in this one you know one day jason just Visits the lady down the road. It's
3: very early in the books. So it's not. A yeah, spoiler. it's not a
0: spoiler. And you know, she's a little weird. And then she's gone. The end, and yeah, it just something continues. very,
3: very strange happens. And then you never hear about her again, right? Right. Never. No. Yeah.
0: And you know, you recognize some of the names. You're like, I feel like I've heard this another David Mitchell book, huh? Mm-hmm. Okay, that was weird. And I just, I just feel like he needs to stop with this.
3: No, no. Okay. okay, so I will. I will as a Mitchell Stan. Okay, Um, I will say like as Bailey said, like there's a way he does it that makes total sense and is really cool. Like in Utopia Avenue, his latest book, he does it really well. There is one main character who interacts directly with this bizarre magical realism world, and it's fantastic. It, that story has a beginning and an end, and you learn more about the world. It's very cool. Black Swan Green is. Absolutely bizarre. I do not know how his editor let him get away with this chapter where as Bailey says something crazy happens And then it just never comes back never discussed again it almost feels like there's like a chapter missing at the end of the book because all he would have had to do is put a little chapter at the end and then you would at least be like, okay, there's the other half of that story, like you mentioned, you know.
0: I totally agree. I think it was more egregious, in Utopia Avenue It didn't work as much for me. But in both, they stand out, and i just mm-hmm. not a fan. So all that to say, I'm giving it four stars. Nice. Um, you know, there are parts of it that felt like five stars, but, like, David Mitchell, just, you know, keep it together. <laughs> Get your bone clocks out of here.
3: Fair enough. Four, uh, four stars. you going to keep it on your shelf?
0: <sighs> I'm going back and forth. For now, I think so. It'll be part of my David Mitchell collection.
2: Nice. So, Toby, you got any facts about... Big Daddy Mitchell? I actually really
3: don't have any facts about David Ooh. Mitchell because we've already covered him on this podcast before. And do you know what? He, I, seriously, we've been saying No Shade a lot. No Shade He's a pretty boring dude. He, <laughs> he seems like a nice person who works extremely hard at writing his books and has a nice family. That's it. Like, that's David Mitchell. So instead, I had this interview with him um, from BookPage.com about this very book, Black Swan Green. Excellent.
0: Dylan, that dumb song stuck in my head.
3: <laughs> Great song. Black song. <laughs> <laughs> These are a, a scattering of quotes from Evan's interview. Mitchell says, quote, I wanted Jason, the main character, to be unformed enough to be plausible. I didn't want him to speak like a child genius, but interesting enough to be readable, Mitchell says. That's tough, but there's one thing on your side. Kids that age don't have the linguistic formulas in place that adults do, what linguists called collocation. The way certain words go with certain other words—that means you can smuggle in accidental poetry, and with luck, wisdom and insight too.
0: That's a great, yeah. That's a great point. Um, mm-hmm. He really encapsulates the voice of the teenager, and even like, like in Adrian Mole, there's a lot of like winks and nods to the adult reader. Like he hears this crazy story, and he's like, "And I heard it happened to this guy named Akron, Ohio." It's like,
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. In creating the character of Jason Mitchell, also drew heavily from his own inner archaeology. Knew it. He says Black Swan Green is his most personal book. Give this fact that this interview was taking place like probably more than 10 years ago. Although I think it still is his most personal book because I don't think he was part of a psychedelic rock band in the 1960s. Not that I know. You
2: do Uh, not know that. I cannot. I'm sorry. I do not
3: avow that as a fact. Quote. I make the distinction that autobiographical is when you and everybody around you is represented in the book. Personal is when you are represented in the book, but the rest of the book is peopled by relatively fictional creations. Like Jason, Mitchell turned 13 in 1982. Like his fictional hero, the writer has a stammer and a capacious sense of verbal play. Both kept scrapbooks about the Falklands War, which broke out in 1982. Quote, The war is one of the formative memories of my youth. The patriotism, the flags, the jubilation, as if it were a sporting event. It was the last time that any young English boy could feel that he lived in a country that kicked ass the consequences of it and the truth of it the stunning expense the miserable expense in terms of human life didn't come for months or years i also remember being surprised by how quickly it disappeared so soon afterward this thing that had been so momentous was no longer in the newspapers that was my first lesson in the shortness of the memories of the newspapers how quickly the loudest mouths forget something that is a world event on monday can be not even a memory on friday i learned that from the Falklands.
0: He really shows that in a book, too.
3: Yeah, and I I remember reading the book, and, like, as a person who was born in the late 80s and not in England, like, I I mean, I knew the name The Falklands War, so this was a really interesting book for me.
0: You don't watch The Crown, Toby?
3: No, I don't, (laughs) Belly.
0: You're missing out.
2: You don't watch documentaries about Tottenham Hotspur players who were from Argentina during that time. There's a 30 for 30 about it. Mitchell says,
3: 1982 was also about the last year I felt like a getaway with writing an English pastoral novel where the rhythm of life is set by the land when the 1,000-year-old rhythm of the countryside was still just about alive. And that reminds me of the book, too. It has so much beautiful language about, like, pastoral England. It really makes you think it's cool. Yeah. And uh, the final quote I have here is, writing a novel is a great excuse to think as deeply as you can about a particular plot of existence, of the world, and of being alive, Mitchell says. When I read a book, I don't want to spend 300 pages in the presence of someone I don't care about. I think it comes down to the answer to two key questions that all the books I love have in common. Are there people who you care about in it? Are you made to ask throughout the entire course of the narrative, will they be okay? If the answer is yes, then the book just doesn't let you go. At some level, that's what good writing is. It's as simple as that.
0: P.S. Question three. Is there a weird chapter about bone (laughs)
3: clocks? (laughs) Uh, And then he just started talking about bone clocks in the middle of the interview. (laughs) And finally, real quick, Bailey, make your case that I would make the case that this is not a YA novel because it is not written for children. I think there are many, many things that like people, like an adult would appreciate about it that a child or like even a young teen would not.
0: Well, okay. here's my case. The back of the book says this is the English Catcher in the Rye. Oh,
3: Okay, So you think Catcher in the Rye is YA? You read it as a young adult. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, you read it as a young adult. That's a bigger question, I suppose. I don't think Catcher in the Rye was written as as YA, and I don't think it is YA. I, I think it's literature that's accessible to children. Well,
0: So isn't that the same as this? No, I,
3: it's, a, it's, See, a, it's getting, a tenuous line, isn't it?
0: So here's what I think about that. I think that YA has become sort of a dirty word, like chicklet. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I don't think it means... I think it's just a coming of age novel, a a novel about a young adult that young adults can enjoy. And I think that that's the case here. Adults can maybe enjoy it better, but I could see myself as a high school student reading this and enjoying it.
3: I suppose you're right. And he's
0: also 13. He's not like 17. So even like a 17 year old could be like, huh. I remember when I was 13.
3: What a fool. (laughs) thought Akron, Ohio was a person. Yeah. I mean, it's
0: not, I guess sometimes you think of YA as like love triangles and that kind of stuff. It's not that, but I don't think that's what YA is all the time.
3: I think you're probably right i think i probably just got schooled on the podcast um but but i think i guess the reason i considered it wasn't ya was that it is more heavily focused on like someone looking back i think the perspective it's is much heavier even though we're in jason's head the perspective very much is like you understand jason and all of his adult characters and everyone around him with an adult's understanding I don't know if it makes that much difference, but it with like good YA that I've enjoyed, for me, it's more about reliving experiences, like reliving the intensity of being a teenager and like having crushes and doing things like that. So that's why I thought it wasn't YA, but your answer makes total sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I was also reliving the emotions and I think that in some good YA, like in John Green or other things, you you do understand what the adults are going through. So I'm just gonna agree to disagree.
3: Yeah, no, yeah, I think you schooled me. I've been dunked on. But I'm editing this, so... Whoosh, no! Andrew, speaking of getting dunked on, yeah. do you have a game for us?
2: Yeah, speaking of getting dunked on, that's a remarkably apt transition, and you Uh-oh. don't even know. Uh-oh.
0: Basketball. Basketball.
2: Slaughterhouse It's my favorite sport. I love it when they dribble up and down the court. Um, <laughs> that was a delightful so, little ride. <laughs> with, I can't take credit for it. I do not remember the artist of it, but it played in NBA 2K 12 as the intro music, (laughs) which I thought was very silly. Um, Wait, it said basketball is my favorite sport. I love it when they dribble up and down the court. court. (laughs) Love it. Okay, the Kalibi in the background. So the game this week, I do have one, is called Bully Parliament. I wanted to honor the city of Chicago, which is, you know, where the jungle takes place, without talking directly about, you know, slaughter of animals and all that good stuff. So we're going to use the 1997-98 Chicago Bulls as a Chicago reference here. Okay. Subject Mm. of the documentary the last dance which hopefully either you saw or have some sort of familiarity with because otherwise it could be hard
0: i have seen it also did you consider that chicago bulls are kind of like chicago cows this
2: to the well, jungle i mean yes well yeah that's why they're called that's the why bulls. they're that's, Wait, really? that's why they're the bulls yeah Whoa. yeah the story that. of meatpacking in chicago
0: and i
3: haven't even seen uh, the last dance so this is gonna be great
1: also the song is basketball by curtis blow <laughs> Thank you. Uh,
3: <laughs> the song is, is um, called Hockey by <laughs> <laughs> I, I
2: hope that he wrote a thing for each song. I hope that it's like, okay, a game. Hockey is my favorite sport. I like it when they hip-check people on the ice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hockey is always really nice. I love it when they slide up and down the ice. So here's how the game is going to work. I mean, this is comedy gold, so we're, we're doing great. Um, you might ask, the name the, the game is Bully Parliament. Where does Parliament come from? Um... The cigarettes. So, from what I understand, uh, Black Swan is going to take place in Worcestershire, England. Um, so, we have here a list of the current members of parliament representing the Worcestershire area, and I have the 1997 98 Chicago Bulls. What I'm going to do, I'll read a name and you'll answer if you think it is a basketball player or a member of parliament. But at the end, there's going to be a bonus round where you can add any additional ones that I don't mention. Let's just say there are some high profile Chicago Bulls. Who wants to go first? Put me in coach. All right. So, Bailey, you're going first. Here we go. Bill went. A Chicago Bull or a member of Parliament? Parliament. That is incorrect. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Bill Wennington is the handlebar mustachioed man from The Last Dance. Toby, are you ready? I'm ready. Ron Harper. Parliament. I'm so sorry. That is incorrect. Ron Harper is a point guard. Um, from Miami of Ohio University standing at 6 foot 6 and Dylan. wearing the number 9. Yeah, Dylan I'm, is I'm,
3: furious with I'm, I'm going to have to take a break while I murder Dylan <laughs> <laughs> for making this face like, how do you not know? Ron Harper's a famous player. I know. I don't know anything about sports, I don't know that either. <laughs> alright, my turn. Alright, alright. all right. All right. <laughs> We're not a child in the 90s? Apparently
2: 90s kids won't remember. <laughs> <laughs> alright, Belle, here you are. Mark Garnier.
0: Kevin Garnett. Um... I- <laughs> I think this is pretty (laughs) associated. Um, I think it is a parliament person. And this is our first correct answer. Congratulations, Bailey.
3: That's that's unfair. His name sounded too similar to Kevin Garnett.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right, Toby. Mm -hmm. Bill Wiggin. Parliament. No, I think that's... That is also correct. Good job, Toby. Similar to Bill Wennington, I thought maybe it would trip you up. Toby Uh, just knows
1: the (laughs) Parliament members backwards, forwards, that's (laughs) the line if
2: he knows? All right, Bailey, your turn. Yo. Luke Longley. I'm not looking at Dylan. I
0: I don't think there was a Luke. I'm going to say Parliament.
2: That is incorrect. Mm -hmm. Luke Longley was a center based out of Australia, but coming through New Mexico University, (laughs) standing at seven foot two and wearing the number 13. Seven foot two. (laughs) Big boy. Toby, your turn. Ready. Robin Walker. Parliament. That is correct. So, Toby, do you just know the Worcestershire <laughs> members of Parliament?
3: No, I have a strategy, which is to always guess Parliament. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's called Game Theory, Andrew. Look it up. <laughs> All right, you're just going to get one more. Nigel Huddleston.
0: See, Nigel sounds very British, but I feel like it's a trick,
2: Bulls. It was not a trick. Nigel Aww. Huddleston is on the British flag. It's the most British name I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> probably born a Parliament member. But
0: I thought it was a trick.
3: Let's see how my strategy serves me in this next one.
2: Here it is, Michael Jordan. Mm. <laughs> Scott Burrell. I'm
3: going to have to go with Parliament.
2: Standing at seven—I mean, sorry—standing at six foot seven, out of the University of Connecticut, wearing the number twenty-four and playing small forward. Scott For Burrell was the, the a British Chicago Parliament. All right, so we've each had four turns. Bailey, you've got one correct. Toby, you've gotten two. Heck yeah. That leaves actually quite a bit of room for uh, improvement, but also there's a number of high-profile Chicago Bulls who were not mentioned here. Okay. Toby, because you elected to go second, you get to go first in the bonus round. We will go until you guys have no more answers to give. If one of you ends first, that's all right. The other person can continue to guess. Okay.
3: All right, my first answer, of course, is uh, Michael B. Jordan. Ha, ha, ha. Just kidding,
2: Michael Jordan.
0: Okay.
3: All right.
2: That is one point for Toby. He's up to three.
0: Um, mine is Dennis Rodman.
2: Okay. That is correct. Scotty Pippen. That Darn it. is correct. Um, Kevin Darnett.
0: <sighs> okay. Well, I know that there was that guy from like Romania or something.
2: He's from Croatia, don't but I don't your- think that'll help you.
3: No, Croatia. Oh, 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 no. Is that the one you know? No. Oh. I think the one I know might be
2: too old, actually, but I'm just going to say him.
0: Larry
3: Bird.
2: Larry Bird played exclusively for the Boston Celtics, oh. and when retired by this time, Wilt Chamberlain. What? Um, Wilt Chamberlain <laughs> played way earlier than this. I yeah, don't think I ever thought. was in he the was league at the same time as Michael Jordan, and played for a lot of teams. Muggsy that, Bokes. None of which were the Bulls. <laughs> Babe Ruth. Bugsy Bogues played for a number of teams, including the Charlotte Hornets, but not this team. Bugs Bunny. But what, what
1: about me? Tony Kukoc. Bugs Bunny
2: played for the, the Toon Squad. <laughs> Michael Wait. Jordan, but when he played baseball.
0: Wait, what? So, what was that uh, Croatian guy? Button me, Tony Kukoc.
2: Here are the final results <laughs> okay. of this game of Bully Parliament. Toby is our winner with four yes. points, and tied in second place are Bailey and Dylan. Yeah. Dylan on yeah, yeah. bonus points alone.
0: All right, well. Great game. I'm very
2: impressed with you all, by the way. I think that you guys did better than I was expecting you to do at that game, Here's even though Bailey did poorly. Mm. I still <laughs> was impressed by the number yeah. of bulls she knew.
0: The Last Dance is very compelling, and there's a lot of shady stuff in it, and I love it. Nice. Well, awesome game. Um, now it's the time on the podcast where Dylan chooses books at random from our shelves to read next. It is time for The choosing. The
1: choosing.
0: The choosing.
1: Well- the thing is that Bailey can no longer read this book if we chose for her. Why? Because she's a mother now. She's not motherless. You have number 68, Motherless Brooklyn, Jonathan Lethem. I'm... Not your best, Dylan. Not your best, My <laughs> Not Dylan. your best.
0: Okay, well, I'm... <laughs> that
3: was so cold. <laughs>
0: I, because I still have a mother. Anyway, I'm excited <laughs> to read this book. I'm a little nervous because I wasn't a huge fan of the movie, but my understanding is it's very different from the movie. Interesting. And uh, it's a detective with Tourette's syndrome. Uh, what about Andrew? What did he get?
3: What did he get?
2: Well, guys. Yeah, how are you going to transition to this one, Dill? Well, no, since you're so mean Dil, to you, me. You know
3: you're allowed to write these down ahead of time, right?
1: I don't know. Since you're also mean to me, I might just run off and fulfill my childhood dream of joining the circus. That's right. Number 15, the Night Circus. Ooh, Andrew, oh, Andrew, I'm so excited whoa. for By, you. By um, Aaron Morgenstern.
3: Oh, I,
1: I I'm think it's
2: really excited. Good. I actually was looking through my list and was like, hmm, what books would I want to be pulled out of this? As I scrolled through a bunch of weird history books I have and <laughs> academic books I've never read. And I was like, actually, I would really like to read The Night Circus. So I'm amped about this. Well, you're about to.
0: That's your reward for finishing The Jungle. Circuses. <laughs> So in two weeks on the podcast, Toby is reading Ring Shout by P. DeJelly Clark, and I am reading Motherless Brooklyn by Jonathan Letham. Thanks for listening to The To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads at goodreads.com slash the to read list podcast and on Instagram at the to read list podcast.
3: If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it five bloody stars on your podcast rating app of choice In uh, in homage to Upton
2: Sinclair, And don't ask where the stars came from. Mm-hmm. Certainly don't ask what's in the cans. And if you want to help us uh, grow our reach a little bit, tell a friend, a loved one, someone whose heart is buried in a separate grave than yours (laughs) um, to check out our podcast. Word of mouth is our best way of finding new listeners, and it really does help us out.
0: Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books.